Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Welcome back to All Fired Up for episode number 15. Can you believe it? I'm still having so much fun. So thank you for all the positive feedback and everybody listening and getting involved in this really important topic of pushing back against diet culture. So today's episode is absolutely so important for everybody to listen to. It's a subject that I've been wanting to talk about for well, since I started the podcast even before. And it's, of course, the subject of weight loss surgery. And gosh, isn't everybody under pressure right now, in, especially in a larger body, that if you've been dieting for a long time, and of course dieting doesn't work, then well, surgery will work, right? It's so often sold to us as this very simple solution. And almost sold to us like it's a responsibility to us to consider weight loss surgery if dieting hasn't worked. But, you know... We need to unpack this very simplistic message that if you're in a larger body and dieting hasn't worked, then next logical step is surgery. There's so much to unpack and to understand about weight loss surgery. And that's what I really wanted to do today. So I really want to preface what comes next with this very strong message. I really want everyone to know that you know, I see people all the time who are considering weight loss surgery or who have had weight loss surgery. And there is absolutely no judgment from me about people doing this. I don't pretend to understand what it's like to live in a very large body and to have day in, day out, all of the weight prejudice thrown at me, all of the disadvantage thrown at me just because of being in a larger body. Diet culture is just so anti-fat. So there's, there's no surprise that people are turning towards this surgery in more and more numbers. So there's no judgment. But what I do try and do with my clients is to have a really open discussion. And my aim with people, whether they've had the surgery or not, or post-surgery, it's, it's really about unpacking and empowering. So if people are considering weight loss surgery, it's really looking at absolutely all of the evidence all of the consequences, all of the likely outcomes and allowing that person to make the decision. But I guess the, the bee in my bonnet with diet culture is that I think a lot of people are going ahead with surgeries like this without proper informed consent. So I don't think people are really across all of the information prior to having the surgery. And I think that can particularly happen in sort of weight loss clinics run by surgeons who are trying to just get people in and out the door. So I'm super excited this episode to bring you an amazing discussion with Lisa DeBrail, who is an American social worker. So she's a clinical social worker in Salem in Massachusetts in the States. And she actually works with people who have maybe developed addictions or eating disorders or other kinds of issues after they've had weight loss surgery. So she's got a really interesting perspective and experience about the kinds of things that can happen to people after surgery. So I will 
let you listen to this episode and you know it is another long one I think we went for another hour this won't happen every week but with some topics it just needs more attention and needs more time so once again it's a two cup of tea or two glass of wine episode and without further ado here is me and Lisa so Lisa thank you so much for coming to talk to me on the show all the way from Salem in the United States it is delightful to be here with you <laughs> So cool. So what is firing you up? Well, right now I'm very fired up about some of the research out there looking at these bariatric surgeries and what the uh, research tells us, but also what it doesn't tell us. Mm, what an awesome topic, right? Because research, mm. research is an interesting phenomenon. Like we like to think of research or scientific research as being very evidence-based and very objective. But as we know, it's not. <laughs> a lot of, especially around weight mm -hmm. science and weight-focused research, it sort of brings its bias straight into this, the area of study, right? Right. So what, is there a particular article that's caught your eye here? Well, yes. I mean, there's several. I feel like you and I are in sort of a little study group <laughs> going to be looking at this research. <laughs> yeah. And the, one of my favorite ones is called Long-Term Follow-Up After Bariatric Surgery, A Systemic Review. And it's from uh, 2014. And what I like about it is the authors went back all the way back to 1946. Wow. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I know. Isn't that incredible? They went through uh, Medline and Cochrane databases back to 1946, right through May of 2014. And they found every study they could about bariatric surgery outcomes. So this was a very, very thorough review. But what's interesting, the first thing that I think is really interesting is they found over 7,000 studies, but they could only, they only included 29 because those were the only ones that met their inclusion criteria Wow. Meaning that they were looking for well done. Yeah, I know. That's it's like less than 1%. <laughs> oh my God. Of those studies. It's, it's embarrassing, isn't it? So what that says is that the quality mm. of the research is really shit. Mm -hmm. Yes, that they couldn't find that many that they were looking for studies that had at least a two-year follow-up and that had kept track of at least 80% of the re of the study participants for that time. Yeah, okay. So this is what a great way of framing it, right? Because it's so easy in research mm -hmm. to especially when it's to do with weight to do the short-term stuff and like short-term stuff mm -hmm. tells us bugger all because anyone can do anything in the short term, but mm -hmm. we really need to look at what's going on for people you know, after <clears throat> the honeymoon is over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and with any research, it's really important, and I've learned this, you know, when a study title says, for example, long-term follow-up, you want to know what their definition of long-term is because to me, long-term follow-up might mean five years, 10 years, but then when you look at the study, their long-term was a year. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that because, I mean, the whole kind of non-diet approach 
does look at long-term, meaning, you know, at least five years, because we know that, that around that time is when diets fail and, and the regains happened and the health indicators back to baseline. So, yeah, I mean, two years for this, it's not a super long outcome, but it's, I guess, at least carving no. out all of the really crappy ones that just follow people for the short term and catch mm-hmm. them at their sparkliest kind of period. So what did they find in this with the view of 29 studies? So what they found was they looked at remission of diabetes. They looked at weight loss. They looked at sort of other comorbid conditions. And what they found was it was really difficult to draw a lot of conclusions because the studies were, you know, there was sort of no no standard understandings of what success or remission meant across the different studies. Okay, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, because I had a read through too. And that, for me, that's always been the headache with trying to understand what bariatric research is. So, for example, I mean, just take the simple idea of weight loss. And that seems pretty like mm-hmm. easy to understand. But it, when you're reading a bariatric surgery paper, it's not like how much weight did this person lose? It's they, they do this thing called, well, many of them do this thing called ex- percentage of excess weight loss, which is yes. confusing. <laughs> do you know what that means? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing is it depends on the people who design the studies, but I think it means that they look at a person and say, well, this person should be at this BMI, mm-hmm. but they are at this other BMI. So they have this many pounds of excess weight. Mm. So then they say, okay, so, you know, if my BMI, I don't know, I'm just making up numbers here. If my BMI says I should be at 150 and I'm at 210, then I have 60 pounds of excess weight. And so then if I lose 30 pounds of that 60 pounds, I've lost 50% of my excess weight. Yeah. Okay. So that makes, it does make. You know, I think that's what it means. Yeah. Yeah. But it's complicated, right? So it's, it but I think the already makes it hard to right. understand what you're looking at. Right. And, you know, different researchers have different definitions of what significant means, yeah. what remission means, what extended remission means. So it's very difficult to compare studies to st- outcomes to outcomes because everybody's got a different definition. And that's one of the conclusions that this review came up with. Yeah, yeah. It's saying like what we need to do is actually standardize what we're actually looking at so that we can start comparing studies in a meaningful exactly. way and figure out just what the hell is going on in bariatric surgery. Right. Do you ever think that maybe right. this is on purpose, <laughs> this confusion? I don't know. I think that that's, I think it's hard not to wonder about that. Mm. I know that there are some standards that have been put out by some of the large obesity organizations, sort of here are the standards of care, mm. but they're not mandatory. No, no. So it's kind of up to everyone to decide whether or not they're going to conform. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's just like if it's not enforced, then it's against our interests to kind of 
give that standardized view because then you might see how ineffective we really are. Right. And that is one of the things that's in this review. And just to read a little couple of sentences, it says substantial risks exist for arriving at overly optimistic conclusions regarding the effect of a weight loss intervention when follow-up is incomplete. Because of incomplete follow-up, most bariatric surgery studies may report overly optimistic estimates for these operations effects. Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, incomplete follow-up, what that means in English is people who don't come back, right? So the people exactly. who drop out. Right. And dropouts are really big in a lot of the research in bariatric yes. surgery. And I know, you know, as a clinician, I see these people. They come and see me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because mm. folks blame themselves, right? Yes, yes. And, and they, they to go back and they feel like they've done something wrong and it's heartbreaking because they have not done anything wrong. You know, a lot right. of, there's just so much pressure on people after surgeries mm -hmm. like this to beat a sparkly, shiny success story. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of judgment involved if you're not finding it easy or if the weight's coming back or if you're not feeling well again. I can understand how difficult it would be to go back to those places and mm -hmm. say, it's not working for me because people get blamed. Right. And I think people are trained by the diet culture to assume that they're the ones that messed up. Yes, yes. And it's even in the research, right? In the research, the reasons that are attributed to weight regain, because weight regain, it happens in across all of the research. There is this recognition that people put the weight back on after bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. Yes, the word common is used when talking about weight regain and bariatric surgery. Yes. Right there in the literature, common. <laughs> yes. I've got a quote here from another article called Weight Regain After Sleeve Surgery from 2016. Yes. Yeah, that's an interesting mm -hmm. one. So here's the quote, weight regain following a variety of bariatric procedures is well recognized but poorly reported. That's right mm -hmm. there in the article. So we know that it does happen. But the again, yep. in, the, in the research, no one really knows why it happens. But several reasons mm -hmm. keep getting thrown around. And of course, the good old, it's the person's fault, pops up all the time. In the sleeve article, one of the factors is, quote unquote, maladaptive lifestyle behaviours. Oh. Yes, the good old maladaptive lifestyle behaviours. <laughs> That's their way of saying it's their fault. <laughs> Right. Oh my God. Right. And you know, that sounds really familiar, right? To any dieter uh -huh. is you didn't do it right. And if you just do it right, yeah, it would you work. know, you'd be successful. Yeah. That is not true. <laughs> that is not true. We know, right. from diet, we know from diet research, even if people keep dieting, their bodies will fight to regain the weight. Right. This, this constant assumption that if someone's body is fighting back, then they must be lying to you about their food mm -hmm. intake or their lifestyle. It just has to stop, but it, it's showing no sign. Right. And this study that you mentioned, the, the one that specifically looks at weight gain following the sleeve, it says specifically 
that the data that they looked at data from one particular research group and they said this clearly demonstrates the increasing susceptibility to weight regain experienced by patients as time from surgery increases mm -hmm. so it's the same as dieting yeah you know, the, you know maybe the first year looks good but when you go farther out what you see is people regain yeah yeah so this review of the weight regain after sleeve surgery they looked at several research groups again but only one of the research groups reported year on year the changes in weight and it, and it happened so at, at one year it was zero in two years mm -hmm. it was one percent at three years it was 11.6%. At four years, it was 19.2%. Mm -hmm. And at five years, it was almost mm -hmm. 30%. So that's showing the trajectory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's just five years. I mean, people are getting these surgeries and they're going to be living with them for decades, hopefully, right? Yeah. Yeah. And people are getting them done younger and younger as well. What we're seeing is actually, it seems to be standard that you will put the weight back on then this needs to be mm -hmm. explained to people and, and form yes. part of their decision and absolutely and that is something that when i've worked with people that have had one of these surgeries and i tell them that and you know when they come in and they're oftentimes very frustrated or ashamed because weight has come back on sometimes all the weight sometimes not but universally, they all think they're the only one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they all think that everyone else is having an amazing outcome and they're the one sort of screw up. And when I tell them, no, that's not true, that this is common, it's, they're both very surprised, but oftentimes really relieved because they feel so much shame and guilt mm -hmm. because they've had regain. Yeah. I know. And, and again, like it's so similar to diets. People come in from diet mm -hmm. saying everyone else is dying and can do it. Why can't I? We really need to sort of get this message out that it's, if you're putting on weight after surgery, that this is actually part of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And the research is showing it. And, mm -hmm. you know, these mm -hmm. reviews are important. And I actually, I give that sleeve in Australia, the sleeve is probably the most popular operation that's being performed right now so i've been giving mm -hmm. um, clients who are thinking about it a copy of this article to read because i think that's fantastic as you know as a health at every size clinician it's not our job to tell people what to do absolutely so what's important is making sure that people are as informed as they can be you yeah. know so they're ready Mm, yeah, I don't know what they do in the States, but often information about surgery is done, you know, they do kind of information nights or, but, but they're kind of like sales pitchy and they emphasize the positives mm -hmm. or, you know, emphasize like this glowing outcome. And they often don't talk mm -hmm. about the risk. They don't talk about the risk of complications. They don't talk about, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure you know that, life after surgery is sometimes very difficult with a whole range of things that can happen from reflux and vomiting mm -hmm. and horrendous gastro symptoms and down to the social mm -hmm. impacts and my gosh that does not get talked about at sales pitchy nights 
Right. And, you know, I do know from hearing from different patients over the years, I think there are some different bariatric programs that do a better or worse job than others, sort of talking about the realities. But when, you know, I've had patients tell me, oh, yes, they did mention this issue or that issue, but I didn't think that was going to be me. Yeah. You know, again, just like the diet thinking, right? I'll be successful. I won't mess up this time. And sometimes that same kind of magical thinking is happening with the surgeries. And also, if all you're getting is one afternoon or a couple of Saturday afternoons to do this kind of learning, I don't know that that's enough time to really let some of this information sink in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very big decision. And of course, in the case of sleeve or bypass surgery, it's irreversible. So it definitely right. warrants a lot of attention and a lot of information gathering and a lot of weighing up. And perhaps rather yeah. than thinking what that won't happen to me, okay, if that did happen to me, would I be okay with that? Would I be able right. to live with that? That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. Because it might be, right? Mm-hmm. But it might right. not be. You know, right. And, you know, one of the things we know when we look at some of the research that's been done historically is that the research shows that most of the people, most of the people in larger bodies who are pursuing these surgeries, they have a lot of internalized weight stigma. They have internalized a lot of the messaging in our culture about fat bodies, and they've got significant rates of depression and anxiety compared to fat people that aren't pursuing these surgeries. And so, you know, they need some attention there and they need really good care. Yeah, yeah. That's not and I worry that that's not happening for them. I totally agree. I think it's a very overlooked reality. So by internalized weight stigma, what you mean is people who have really internalized this idea that fat is bad and right yeah, and their body is a problem to be fixed yeah right and that weight loss will fix it yeah and gosh i mean then you go to a bariatric surgeon who also has high levels of weight stigma against larger people mhm so you're not right. really going to get picked up <laughs> about you know what i think you have high levels of internalized sort of weight right loss. That's not right. recognized by the right. right. Again, exactly. Because again, when we, I do some work and talking and teaching about weight stigma, especially in medical settings. And unfortunately, our medical providers, including bariatric specialists, have the same rates of stigmatizing attitudes towards fat people as the general population. Mm, yeah. It's really disturbing, but very true. Mm-hmm. So the very people that you turn to for help might actually reinforce this stigma that you're right. believing in. And you know what? Surgery doesn't fix that stigma. Correct. Yes. Again, you know, when we look at the research, weight loss does not improve body image, which sounds very counterintuitive because that's what we're constantly told, right? That 
the answer to this is to change your body. And if you just lose weight, all of this is going to get better. But when we actually look at the research done on internalized weight stigma and bad body image, weight loss does not fix this or remove that for people. We never hear that. We never get told that. Right. I spend a lot of time talking about this with people as well. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's one thing, one area that you could look at prior to having surgery, it would be this internalized weight. So if you can find a therapist or somebody Mm -hmm. to work on, you know what, I really... (laughs) I really hate my fat body or I I really Mm -hmm. think I'm a worse person because of the Mm -hmm. size of my body. If you can find someone to talk to about that who actually understands Mm -hmm. the complexity of it, because it can shift. We can actually shift internalized weight stigma. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is a changeable thing. And if you can change that, then think about surgery, you're going to be in a much better place, right? I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, we have lots of good evidence that because it is about the way you think, it is absolutely malleable and changeable and will absolutely put you in a better position to take good care of yourself and have, you know, realistic expectations for post-surgery life. If you make the decision to move forward with the surgery, you're going to be in a much better position. Yeah, absolutely. Very much so. It's so important. And it will help you navigate the weight biased world of bariatric surgery. Yes. In a different way. Right. Yeah. If we can return, because I know that people listening will be interested in what do these reviews actually say is likely to happen to your weight? What is likely to happen to your health indicators from this big JAMA review from 2014? So what I've got written here is, I mean, as we've identified, it's very difficult to pick up conclusions or generalizations from all of these genus studies. But what they've been able to extract, and most of the outcome research is on bypass. There's, there's 11 different studies that looked at bypass and 14 on the bands mm-hmm. and only a couple on sleeves. So in this big JAMA article, they didn't actually make any conclusions about sleeves because there was not enough evidence to say much. Which, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess is where we can turn to the other article. Right. So th- looking at if people who had the band or the bypass and got 50% or more of excess mm-hmm. weight loss, so that happened to 31% of people with gastric band mm-hmm. and 65% of people with bypass. So it's not... <laughs> It's not a lot for the band stuff. Before we had this chat, I was looking at the Australian Centre for Obesity Research, which Mm -hmm. is big on bands, as I was saying earlier. And the website literally promises the world and sort of says, this is effective. You know, this is basically sort of saying, this is going to make you really thin. Yes, right. And again, you know, I know we're kind of hammering this point home, but long-term could mean two years. Mm. When they talk about long-term weight loss or, you know, almost no studies that look at people five years out, 10 years out, 15 years out. So it's really important to keep that in mind as you're looking at these numbers. Yeah, this is not really long-term. This is a couple of years in. So a couple of years in, if you've had a gastric band, about one-third of people would have lost 50% or more of excess weight. 
Mm -hmm. So that's not, you're not going to lose a hundred percent of your so-called excess weight, mm -hmm. which is what they're promising on the website, but mm -hmm. around two thirds won't that's saying with the bypass, the number goes up to 65%. So it is definitely higher mm -hmm. in, that, in that much more radical, irreversible operation. But again, still, you know, a third of people don't mm -hmm. at two years. So right. yeah, those are numbers to kind of remember. Yes, absolutely. Uh, looking at the outcomes for diabetes remission, for bypass around 66% and for mm -hmm. bands, bands around 28%. Mm -hmm. So very similar, right? To the right. And again, you know, I would not say I'm an expert on diabetes after weight loss surgery, not even close, but I do know that a lot of the studies show that again, the longer you go out from the surgery, the more people that were in remission are no longer in remission yeah. from their diabetes. I so think, yeah. again, important to keep in mind. Yeah, we're only two years out and it's not, it's definitely not a hundred percent remission rates. And I do know from sort of tearing through the core research or the, the band research is that, you know, what they do with when they're investigating diabetes is that they recruit people for their trials who have only been diagnosed with diabetes in the last couple of years because they know that those ones are more likely to be reversible than people who have had diabetes for a longer period of time. So, Oh, interesting. I know. So sneaky in picking the ones who are likely to win anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So really and again, really important for people to know when they're thinking about, is this going to help with my diabetes? How long have you had it? Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's a big selling point is that this will cure your diabetes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it's more realistic to say it might help it for a period mm -hmm. of time if you haven't mm -hmm. had it for very long. Hypertension, the remission rate for bypass is 38% and for bands, 17%. Those numbers aren't, aren't as high as right. diabetes, which is interesting, particularly low for the band. Less cholesterol stuff, remission rates around 60% for bypass and 22% for the band. Yep. So we're not looking at a huge, wonderful, shiny, everyone's much better. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think it's important to remember in this review, what they talk about, you know, it says most of the studies we reviewed reporting hyperlipidemia outcomes did not report laboratory information and none assessed medication usage. Are you serious? <laughs> so that's what it says. Yes, page nine. Wow. So similar to assessing true diabetes remission outcomes, lack of knowledge of medication usage precludes definitive conclusions being made for the long-term effects of bariatric surgery on hyperlipidemia. My gosh. So to me, the big conclusion when you read this review is we really don't know. We yeah. just don't know. No, we don't. The, the research is pretty crappy, mm -hmm. um, pretty crappy standards, and mm -hmm. it's definitely not as sparkly and wonderful as everyone's selling us. Right. The definitions of what remission is, what good control is, what long-term is, they're all over the place. It depends on the, the researchers. And so it's really hard to come to any 
significant conclusions. Yeah. Well, I guess it's easy to come to one, which is it's definitely big business. And, uh, yes. <laughs> and it's got a lot of attention. I've got another quote from the JAMA article. Mm. <laughs> Very few bariatric surgery studies report long-term results with sufficient patient follow-up to minimise biased results, which is what you were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. We are looking at biased samples. What I would love is a giant collection of people who have dropped out of studies to right. come together and to talk to people about what happened and what their experiences mm -hmm. have been because mm -hmm. those voices are absent. Yes. And people are feeling very isolated in their post weight loss surgery experience if it hasn't been the dream. Wouldn't it be lovely to see research about that? Well, you know, there actually is research done on life after weight loss surgery. It's not being done by bariatric experts. Ever. It's being done by sociologists and psychologists and other mental health folks who are interested in doing more qualitative studies. So there are some studies out there, but you're not going to find them in with a lot of the these kind of bariatric studies because in my experience reading bariatric studies, what they're always interested in in the end is the weight loss. Did mm. they lose weight? Did they not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in a most glowing way and then blaming mm -hmm. people for their failure if it didn't happen. So it is harder to find some of those more qualitative life after surgery information. It is out there but it can be harder to find and because it's oftentimes in like a sociological journal yeah. rather than the obesity journal or JAMA. Yeah, yeah. It'll be tucked away in something much less sparkly. Mm -hmm. But what I'll try and do maybe after we have our chat today, we can dig up a few and put them in the show notes for people to look at. Sure. They sound, you know, that's, that's really fascinating and valuable information. Mm -hmm. Thank you. There are a couple of studies that are looking at some of the difficulties that pop up post-surgery, mm -hmm. one of them which you've mentioned to me is the risk of self-harm incidents after yes. surgery, which is fascinating. Yeah, there's a study that came out again in JAMA Surgery, the Journal of the American Medical Association Surgery, in March of 2016, looking at self-harm emergencies after bariatric surgery. And this was, it is interesting and alarming at the same time. Yeah, yeah. What did they find? Well, they, what they found was that the risk of a self-harm incident, which is when someone tries to kill themselves, was 50% higher wow. after bariatric surgery. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's an alarming statistic. Yes. And this was done in Canada. Yeah. And it's interesting because what they did was they looked at people who showed up in emergency rooms and people who needed ambulances. You know, that's how they found folks. Yeah, these are pretty serious incidences then. Right, yeah. right. I've got the study here, and I think what they were looking at was they looked at folks three years before the surgery and then three years after. Yeah. their surgery. Mm. And this, the self-harm behaviors were medications, alcohol, poisoning by toxic chemicals, and physical trauma. Wow. 
So they looked at who showed up in, in emergency rooms, who called for an ambulance, and who needed hospitalizations. And that's sort of how they found these emergency events, mm. these self-harm events. It's a really big number. And, and what they found was that uh, the increase, I know, yeah. it's very concerning. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing it's important to remember is this way of collecting data doesn't capture people that tried to hurt themselves and didn't go to the emergency room. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking about, right? You know? It's every call to an emergency room, there's... A, there's and also, this data doesn't capture people who completed a suicide attempt, because if you've actually killed yourself, of course, you know, you don't need to go to the emergency room. Oh, God, that's awful. Right? Yeah, so, And the study's authors acknowledge this, you know, that they likely missed people mm. because of how they were able to collect the data. Yeah. Did the study make any conclusions about why people were doing this? Well, you know, it's interesting because they did come up with some ideas about why this is happening. And, you know, one thing they talked about was the alcohol, which I'm hoping we're going to talk about too, yeah. sort of people being intoxicated. The other thing they did mention increased stress and anxiety after surgery. Mm, interesting. And there's also another thing that is very interesting, which is the effects of surgery on the levels of neurohormones, okay. which I know nothing about, <laughs> um, but, no. but they were looking at, it says that the direct effects of surgery on the levels of neurohormones need to be investigated as possible mediators of the likelihood of depression and suicidal behaviors. Hmm. That's really interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mediators of behaviors. Right. I mean, what that's saying is that there might be an increase in impulsivity after Surgery. Right, because of some sort of change that the surgery causes that's sort of out of people's control. Mm, wow. The other thing that isn't talked about in this article is the possibility, what, you know, likelihood that people have had the surgery and life isn't great. Life is a mm -hmm. lot more difficult than they thought for various reasons. Mm -hmm. But because they've had the surgery and that's their last ditch, right? That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I worry about that too. And they did note that almost all the people that they tracked, that they found, had a history of major depression. Yeah, yeah. Had already, prior to the surgery, had been yeah. diagnosed. And well, so, again, like what kind of care are people getting? What kind of preparation are people getting? You know, I worry about this. I, I do too. And of course, you know, if you're in a larger body, and you're suffering from internalized weight stigma and you're living in a world that stigmatizes larger bodies, of course you're going to get depressed. Mm -hmm. It's a normal response to self-hatred and living in a culture that hates you. Oh, makes me really angry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, as a really large person myself, I know that my being a health at every size oriented clinician and also living, you know, using health at every size for myself mm. has made a huge difference in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like has really helped inoculate me in some ways yeah. ag against our culture's, you know, body, dis constant body distress. Yeah. Yeah. I like that word inoculate. 
Like it's, you mm-hmm. know, inoculate is like protect against disease, isn't it? It's right. Oh, and to think that instead of using this health at every size approach to look at the whole kind of how we treat people in larger bodies in our culture, rather than bringing that to the forefront, we're cutting people up and uh, it's a mess. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly, you know, I really get, I really understand the intense drive to escape the stigma. Yeah. You know, I think it, I think it's really important to acknowledge like, you know, of course it's kind of like trying to get off the Titanic, yeah. you know, of course you want to get off the Titanic. And it, I think it's really important to, like we've talked about, you know, really help people think through this so that if they decide, hey, this is how I want to get off the Titanic, they're as prepared as they can be. Yeah, yeah. And ready for the challenges ahead. Yeah. So that they can have the best possible out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's not jumping off the boat with your eyes shut. It's, it's right, exactly. Going in eyes open and hopefully going in eyes open and holding hands with a whole bunch of people who are going to help you through it. Absolutely. Not in Absolutely. a in a weight biased way, but in mm-hmm. a completely weight inclusive way. Because yeah, I don't I hope that, that doesn't come out from today's talk with you to anyone who's listening that I would judge anyone for having surgery because mm-hmm. a lot of my clients choose to and right. I'm no kind of <laughs> in no position to tell people what to do with their bodies. But it's more right. about helping people to put their experience of their body in context and to provide support, mm-hmm. to support, but it's mostly about consent and anything that you do with your body, you need to really know what is likely to happen and be, right. be okay with that. Absolutely. You know, that's really important. And that's why the body autonomy piece of the HACE approach, I feel like is so valuable. Yeah, absolutely. There is one more study that we need to get through, which is the... yes. The one you were mentioning about alcohol, which is fascinating. So can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So this is, again, from JAMA Surgery, the Journal of the American Medical Association, from August of 2015. And it's actually a letter. It's a research letter. And it's got a great title that really, the minute I saw the title, I said, oh, I have to read this. Mm. So it says, the effect of Roux-en-Y gastric bypass surgery converting two alcoholic drinks to four. So as you can imagine, you know, I'm an addictions clinician. So as you can imagine, this really caught my eye. So it's a really interesting study because what they did was they did a crossover study with women. It was a small study, but it was women who hadn't yet had the surgery and then they followed them to after they had the surgery. Mm Mm-hmm. And they looked at what happened to their alcohol metabolizing after the surgery. And so what they did was they looked at BAC or blood alcohol concentration when they gave them the equivalent of two servings of alcohol in a short period of time. So what they found was the having the ruin Y increased the rate of delivery of the ingested alcohol into their circulation, resulting in earlier and higher blood alcohol concentration peaks and a greater feeling of drunkenness. 
Wow. Right. So the blood alcohol concentration in the post-surgery group exceeded the legal driving limit in the United States. Oh, wow. Yeah, from two drinks. So, so what happens is, you know, when we have a serving of alcohol, if you or I had a serving of alcohol, we start metabolizing it in our mouths. Yeah. And then we metabolize more of it in our stomach. And then our liver, you know, it goes into our colon, you know, our duodenum and colon, and the liver metabolizes. And by the time it hits our bloodstream to head to our brains, about half the alcohol has already been metabolized. Yeah. And then the liver takes care of the rest, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the liver's big jobs because alcohol is toxic to the liver. Yeah. So the liver immediately goes to work and says, okay, we got to move this on out. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, when the alcohol's in our bloodstream and it's going to our brain, we get a buzz yeah. that most people find enjoyable. Yeah. That's why we like a drink. Yeah. Right. That's why we like a drink because it kind of mellows you out or relaxes you. And, you know, so mm -hmm. what happens with the surgery is almost none of the alcohol gets metabolized before it hits the bloodstream. Shit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's almost like you've had two drinks instead of one. And because people who've had this surgery have less food in their digestive tract. Yeah, exactly. The alcohol gets sort of dumped into the bloodstream. Mm. So it's this big dump of alcohol mm. that then travels to the brain and the brain gets this kind of slam of alcohol so to speak mm. so when you look at this study on the second page it has some charts and it shows this big spike in blood alcohol concentration and then a big fall off so the experience for the person instead of like a kitty roller coaster ride which is yeah. kind of what regular alcohol experiences, like a little buzz and you have it for a little while. The post-surgery alcohol experience is more like cocaine. It's yeah. this big high and then a big drop. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like you're going to get addicted to these. Right, exactly. Because that kind of experience, that kind of big hit mm. and then big drop mm. is much more addictive for our brains than the more gentle kitty roller coaster experience mm. that you get, you know, from a drink. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. Really, really nicely explained. Thank you. That is not in the brochure. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing too, it's important to remember is this means that the liver and the heart and the body is exposed to more alcohol. Yeah. 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 There's no protective barrier kind of thing. Because that first, you know, that metabolism that normally happens in the stomach yeah. isn't happening. So it's not very good for you. No. Well, we, we know that there is an increase. Like I just seem to recall there's an increase in substance abuse disorders amongst people who have had the surgery. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I've, I've certainly had those experiences with my clients who have had, yes. had that. It's a very intense intoxication. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It can be very sudden onset and then also a sudden exit of the, and then the person will drink you know, again, with a normal digestive tract, you can have a serving or two of alcohol and you can feel the effects for a few hours. Mm. 
you know? And when people have had the surgery of what a lot of people report to me is that they get very drunk very quickly and then it just as quickly goes away. So then they'll drink more, you know, because they want to enjoy that, the buzz that people drink alcohol to have. I know. And when you think about, you know, when your relationship with food has been so severely restricted by the surgery, Mm -hmm. that that this could become even more tempting. Yes, exactly. Because our brains want to experience pleasure. Yeah, we're human. And that's normal. And the other thing I think it's important to know about this phenomenon is the typical time of onset for this kind of problem is two to three years out from the surgery. Uh, So when no one's watching. Right. And it's not because a lot of times what people think when they hear about this and they think, oh, well, this is someone who was addicted to food and now they're substituting alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the person thing. Right. Back to the person blaming. And there is such a thing as what are called substitute addictions and they do happen. I mean, I I do addiction work and I've certainly seen it, Mm. but people don't wait two or three years to develop a substitute addiction. No. So the big question is, you know, why is this happening? Yeah. And I wonder about a few different things, including the fact that two to three years is usually when the honeymoon is over mm-hmm. and people have lost whatever weight they're going to lose. Yeah, they know? might even be starting by year. And maybe three. some weight is coming back. Yeah, they would be, yeah. Oh, wow. And maybe the surgery hasn't changed what they thought it was going to change. Mm-hmm. And as you've said, you know, you said previously, people have done, they've done the surgery, they've done the thing that was sort of the last resort after other things have failed. And now maybe it's not working the way that they thought it would. Yeah, real life is hitting. And this is why, mm-hmm. you know, this conversation so that's really I'm... highlighted for me how we need, mm-hmm. we really just need to do long-term research. We are all guinea pigs right now yes. with this. And we owe it to the human beings that are being operated on to Mm -hmm. to do good quality, long-term, longitudinal research Mm -hmm. and exploring all of these Mm -hmm. factors. And Mm -hmm. I get so frustrated because if we could do this without the weight bias hat on, it would be so much more informative than, you know, this very narrow focus on weight regain and blaming the people for it. And also the other thing that I wonder about in, this is not my area of expertise is, you know, are there nutritional changes mm. after two or three years? You know, well, we, yeah, we don't really know. I mean, we definitely know with gastric bypass that, that malabsorption of minerals mm-hmm. and vitamins and things like that becomes difficult. And Fiona Willa tells a really harrowing story of somebody who'd had the surgery, who I think she had a heart attack or something like that. She was in her early fifties and they basically couldn't get enough food into her. Right. She ended up passing away because she was so malnourished oh. and her potty just couldn't hold her anymore. And it really right. affected Fee because, mm-hmm. you know, as a dietitian, it was her job to try and feed this person. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so I wonder a lot about that. Mm. I wonder a lot about possible changes. Like they talked about the neurohormones, or some kind of malabsorption issue that 
mm. makes people, I don't just don't know. I mean, like I said, there's just so much we don't seem to understand. I know. But what's important for people to remember is this effect that happens with alcohol does not ever go away. Wow. So a lot of bariatric centers now are recommending that people are abstinent for at least the first year after the surgery. And that makes sense because, you know, they talk to people about, you know, you need time to adjust and to learn how to eat what you need to and all of that. But sometimes I think my understanding from folks is people assume that means once a year's over, you're good to go. Yeah. And that's not what this is saying whatsoever. And that's not what this is saying. So it's something to, that you have to be careful about mm. if you're going to choose to drink that you have to really be careful about for the rest of your life. And again, it's all about like making sure that people know, mm-hmm. you know that they've got information so they can make the right decision for them. That's right. Because for some people that might not be a big deal whatsoever. For others, That's right. it might be a deal breaker. Yeah. It might be a deal breaker <laughs> and everybody's different. Yeah. This has been a fantastic study group. I really appreciate this. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. We should do this more often because uh-huh. I can always use help understanding a study. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we, will, we will totally nerd out about this topic, but I really appreciate your expertise and viewpoint on this. It's been really good. I think you were mentioning there's a couple of support groups online for people to do with the surgery stuff that we yes. will pop into the show notes. Yes. That's one thing I would like to say is uh, we talked about it before we started recording. Mm-hmm. I think if people are interested in these surgeries, it's really important that you do everything you can to get in touch with folks that have been living with the surgery for five years or more. Yeah. You want to talk to people that can tell you about five years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years, if you can find folks to get a really good picture. And also to make sure you talk to people who are not just pleased, but also people that have regrets. You know, why do they have regrets? Mm. What do they wish was different? And yes, there are groups out there for people that are having some different issues and I'll be happy to send you the links. But you know, just information gathering is so important and getting a wide view of opinions as you can is really important. Mm. And that longitudinal experience because Mm -hmm. a lot of my clients get sort of stuck or seduced by their friends or family who are one or two years out. Right. Yeah. The honeymoon right. period. Yeah. Smack bang in the honeymoon period. And that's when the mm-hmm. pressure, they, they tend to put the pressure on, hey, do this. When are mm-hmm. you doing this? It's making a decision based on someone else's honeymoon pictures is, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you need to get deeper than that. This is your body and this is permanent. So right. I like that advice of find people who've been living with it for a long time. Mm-hmm. and find everything out about it, not just the shiny bits. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much once again for talking to us. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> it's been a delight. Yeah. Well, I hope to catch up with you really soon. Thanks once again. Oh, more than welcome. So happy to spend some time with you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. That was the wonderful Lisa DeRail. So much wisdom and experience and knowledge and compassion. I just adored that conversation and there's just so much to kind of 
let sink in and think about. So I really hope that you guys can have a bit of time to reflect and listen. And look, if someone in your life is thinking about taking that step, please share this episode with them because knowledge is power. And again, just a huge thank you to Lisa for sharing her time with us in that very special episode. And in the show notes, if you want to find out more about Lisa, you can find info there. So that's it for another week. And of course, I'll be back next week with a huge steaming pile of diet culture crap. And you know what? Diet culture crap is really heating up here in Australia right now because it is rolling not only into summer, summer starts here on in December, and of course Christmas happens, and then guess what, New Year. So diet culture is approaching high season in terms of turning up the volume on body focus and guilt and all kinds of crappy New Year's ideas. So from next week, so from December 1st onwards, all of the All Fired Up episodes for the next four or five weeks are going to be devoted to this topic of surviving diet culture high season, how we can get through this really horrendous time of being told that we need to kind of get summer ready and beach ready and you know not get too fat over Christmas and make sure we go on a diet in the new year. I please identify all of that as just absolute diet culture crap and call it out because it's really heating up and I'm definitely seeing it in my clients at the moment. Everybody's starting to feel a bit worse because diet culture is so effective at ensuring that as summer comes along every year, those reminders about body scrutiny are just amped up. So just bugger off to all of that, push back. And I will be devoting all of these episodes in the next four weeks in hopefully helping people to push back and say no and hopefully start 2018 in a whole new different way, right? 2018 needs to be the year of not dieting, not going on another one ever the hell again. Okay, unexpected soapbox moment there. So thank you for bearing with me. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go to iTunes and do the rating and review so we can get more notice and better rankings and get our message out there more and more and more. So, and of course, if you are looking for some help with our Untrapped program to help you kind of unhook from diet culture and all of the damage that is done to people's relationships with eating and exercise and bodies, go to untrapped.com.au and join our community because life can be really fabulously different outside the diet prison. Okay, so thank you for listening. I'll be back next week. And until then, trust no one, think critically, push back against diet culture, untrap, from the crap.